Mr. B, my podcast. I'm Mr. B. Before I begin, I want to thank you all for being so patient while Mrs. B and I moved from our place in Oak Park to our new and wondrous townhome in Westchester. I'm hoping that maybe sometime we can all get together. We're pretty much moved in now, so I'm able once again to share some of my thinking with you. In this, the final episode of my podcast first season, it's a little bit of a tongue twister, I'd like to pull things together and talk to listeners in a personal way. This podcast, as you already know, highlights the concept of beauty. We've woven the concept of beauty in and out of this first season, sometimes touching on the word beauty and sometimes providing an example of the beautiful. But I don't think we've ever just stopped, really dug in and talked directly, explicitly about the meaning of beauty itself. That's what I'd like to do at the start of this three-part episode. Once we have gained a clearer understanding of this quality, I'd then like to get personal, to share with you what Mr. B finds most beautiful in his life. My hope is that this discussion will allow and encourage you, my dear friends and listeners, to consider and attend more closely to whatever may be beautiful in your life. Ready? Let's get started. First, the meaning of beauty. To start off, I think it would be best to distinguish between describing and defining beauty. I want you to know up front that I do not feel competent or comfortable enough with my own knowledge to define beauty. And in this, I know that I am not alone. For instance, the philosopher, poet, and priest John Hodonahue considered beauty to be too endless and elusive to define. Quote, what beauty is, O'Donoghue wrote, can never be finally said, Unquote. Here, therefore, my effort will not be directed so much toward arriving at a conclusive definition as it will be instead to describe some of the most fundamental characteristics of what is beautiful. At its most basic level, beauty can be characterized as aesthetic. Something aesthetic, as I use this term, is, quote, of the senses, unquote. Hmm. This means that what is beautiful is something that is perceived, initially at least, through one or more of our human senses. Sight, hearing, touch, smell, and or taste. But not everything that we perceive through our senses qualifies as aesthetically beautiful. What does qualify as beautiful must, in addition, be pleasing to our senses. This quality distinguishes what is beautiful from what is ugly. Ugliness also appeals to our senses, 
but what is ugly we experience as aesthetically repulsive. It pushes us away. The great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas probably put it most simply and perhaps most beautifully when he described beauty as, quote, that which pleases when seen, unquote. Yes, there is great beauty in simplicity, isn't there? A second feature of the aesthetic involves motivation. It's true, we begin to understand aesthetics in terms of what is pleasing to our senses, but then what? Well, lots actually. What pleases stimulates the passions, our impulses, urges, our emotions, pointing our passions in the direction and pursuit of what is beautiful. Beauty is the motivational force which attracts, which draws us toward that, whatever that may be, a sunset on the beach, a Picasso during his blue period, the creativity of Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, the humility and kindness of Mother Teresa. Professor of theology John Mark Miravel explained the motivational force of beauty in this way. Quote, Beauty is what ignites in us the passions, the desire for what is good and true, because it is presented in sense images that provoke within us such strong emotional reactions. Unquote. This bears repeating. Beauty is what ignites in us the passions, the desire for what is good and true, because it is presented in sense images that provoke within us such strong emotional reactions. You see, and this comment is directed to my former students. There was reason, indeed very good reason, for me to dress up just about every day in class. Remember my ties? Here I was trying to ignite my students in the passion of history. It's one thing to understand beauty within the context of aesthetics. That's a start. But to stop at the aesthetic character of beauty would be to leave the larger question unanswered. Here it is. What is it exactly that makes something pleasing to the senses? Or maybe I could put it this way. What makes something, anything, a thing of beauty? Two features exist. I mean coexist simultaneously, side by side, within whatever we see as beautiful. These two features are order and surprise. Let's take order first. Here's the idea. Everything beautiful reveals in some way a sense of order. What do I mean by order? Maybe a few synonyms might help. Something ordered is also rational reasonable, intelligible in ways that we can, as humans, understand. Order implies a pattern, a principle, 
a theme or idea that can be recognized by our intelligence. The Greek philosopher Plato spoke of order in terms of measurement and proportionality. His best student, Aristotle, listed symmetry as one key aspect of beauty. Here, I think an example or two are in order. Get it? In order? That's a pun. One example from the world of nature might be a river. The natural flow of water through a river, pretty much any river, can mesmerize just about anybody as a thing of beauty. But what is it that attracts us to the beauty of a flowing river? It is order. Rivers flow according to patterns, patterns that remain stable and are not subject to change over time. Patterns that can be predicted according to an intelligence expressible in mathematic terms. In terms of what exactly? Well, yes, you probably guessed it. In terms of the law of gravity. The order and beauty of the river lies in the physical expression of this law of nature. There is order in the world. Isn't that reassuring? There is order in the world. If you become unsure and need some reassurance, you need do nothing more than allow yourself to become entranced by the sights and sounds of running water. Beyond the natural world, I'd like to describe an example of man-made beauty. Beauty in the form of music. Actually, that's my favorite art form. Maybe it's yours. Here's the question. When does sound become music rather than noise? Hmm. I think that's a pretty good question. I'm not sure how you would answer this question, but here's my answer. Sound becomes music rather than noise, if and when man imposes an order upon sound. Order in the form of stable and predictable patterns of sound. Patterns that can take the form of a beat, rhythm, harmony, lyrics, sound that is often structured within a recognizable scale and key. All these elements can make sound intelligible and understandable into music. I remember a conversation I once had with a good friend and former student, Mark Mahoney. At that time, Mark was managing an experimental jazz club on the north side of Chicago. Mark and I see jazz shows together now and then. At least we used to before COVID. After one show, I recall that Mark, who, having experienced the experimental frontier between sound and music in his work, admitted to me that he did not like listening to jazz that was completely free of form. It's called free-form jazz. For Mark, there must be some underlying structure, some sense of order, however unconventional that structure might be, before sound would become pleasing to Mark's ear. Let me put Mark's words into the terms of our discussion. The beauty of music simply does not exist without an underlying sense of order. But for there to be beauty, order is not enough. 
if order by itself was enough, I think that more students would actually want to attend school. You see, there is a clear order to the school day, a day run by the bell, a bell that ushers the herd from class to class on virtually the same schedule just about every day the entire school year. Yet, despite this clear sense of order, I do not know of a single student in more than 20 years of teaching who described the school day as beautiful. You never did, did you? What's up with that? What's up is that order, though a necessary component, is not enough to constitute beauty. Order, standing alone, is just boring. Beauty also requires surprise. Does surprise need defining? You might be surprised to find out that the answer is yes. Surprise does need to be better understood. To start with, surprise can be understood as a sense of wonder or astonishment, amazement, even marvel, as in marvelous. Here's one effort to define surprise. Quote, surprise is the mind's attentive response to what it does not find obvious, unquote. I really like this. I think it's a wonderful starting point for us. I'll say it one more time. Quote, surprise is the mind's attentive response to what it does not find obvious, unquote. Well, what does the mind not find obvious? Here are two ways that something is not obvious and therefore surprising. First of all, something can be surprising subjectively. That is, surprising to us on a personal, individual level. To the extent that something surprises me subjectively, as a subject, that something, whatever it is, must exceed my own comprehension or expectation. Here's an example. Professor Miravel is subjectively surprised by the number one trillion. The number one trillion, subjectively surprising. Here's how one trillion was once described by the author Bill Bryson. Quote, if you initialed one dollar bill a second, remember that, one dollar bill a second, you would make $1,000 every 17 minutes. After 12 days of nonstop effort, you would acquire your first million. Thus, it would take you 120 days to accumulate $10 million and 1,200 days, something over three years, to reach $100 million. After 31.7 years, you would become a billionaire, but not until 31,709.8 years elapse would you count your one trillionth dollar bill, unquote. So, what exactly is surprising about the number one trillion? At the rate of one dollar per second, it would take almost 32,000 years to make one trillion dollars. This fact is something that can be difficult 
for the math-challenged mind, minds like Miravelle's or mine, to wrap their heads around. The trouble that I have personally in understanding this makes the number one trillion surprising to me. Okay then, that's subjective surprise. Something can also be objectively surprising. Here's how Miravelle described objective surprise. Quote, something is objectively surprising when it is surprising in itself, when it doesn't have to be the way it is. If something is different than it might have been, then the way it is isn't obvious, unquote. This bears repeating. I know this can be a little confusing. Quote, something is objectively surprising when it is surprising in itself, when it doesn't have to be the way it is. If something is different than it might have been, then the way it is isn't obvious, unquote. And there is surprise. What are the keys here? There are two, I think. First, objective as opposed to subjective surprise is, quote, in itself, unquote, in the object. It is not a surprise that is individual or personal to those who find large numbers difficult to comprehend. Objective surprise is universal, surprising to everyone. And here's the second key to understanding objective surprise. Something is universally surprising, an objective fact, when that something, that object, doesn't have to be the way it is. When that something, that object, doesn't have to be the way it is. This is what fills us with astonishment, a sense of wonder, that that object, that something, somehow is, quote, different than what it might have been, unquote. Once again, nature provides a clear example of objective surprise. Here's Mirabel describing why everyone, without exception, finds beauty in the natural world. Quote, Nature is surprising in itself because nature doesn't have to be the way it is. We can imagine nature being differently constructed. There's nothing obvious about gravity. Why shouldn't all objects repel instead of attracting? There's nothing obvious about grass. Why shouldn't it be red instead of green? And most importantly, there's nothing obvious about the fact that it exists at all. It doesn't have to be the way it is, unquote. I'm not sure I could speak for you, or maybe I can, but I find the objective surprise of nature to be very powerful. Let me please repeat one of Mirabel's sentences. Quote, There's nothing obvious about the fact that nature exists at all. End quote. This is a surprise that fills me, and my bet is you too, with a sense of awe, of humility and gratitude, a thankfulness so immense that it's impossible to fully express in words. A second objectively surprising example is even larger than nature. It concerns life itself. 
My guess is that when you woke up this morning, you simply assumed that you would continue to live throughout the day. In fact, I bet that you made the same assumption yesterday without even thinking about it, and that you will make the same assumption tomorrow, indeed, probably as long as you live. This is not just your own personal assumption. This is something we've learned. It's a cultural assumption, perhaps the most fundamental of all cultural assumptions, at least in the modern Western world. An entitlement which has become enshrined as the right to life. This assumption was questioned by a man with a broader perspective, someone who once apprenticed himself to a Mayan shaman in Guatemala. His name is Martin Prechtel. And he once spoke two sentences about modern Western culture that continues to stick with me. Here's Prechtel's first sentence about the dominant culture of North America. Quote, hey, um, it's very strange where you come from, unquote. That's it. His one sentence description about our culture, the dominant culture of North America. Quote, hey, um, it's very strange where you come from, unquote. Yes, I have to agree with him. Our culture here in North America is very strange. But the power of this statement is what has been left unsaid. For me, this only raised another question. What he said made me want to know more. It raised the question of how. How, according to Prechtel, is our modern culture so very strange? After considerable coaxing, Prechtel would reveal his second sentence his answer to the question of how. Ready? Quote, It seems to me that where you come from, everybody wakes up every day expecting to live. Unquote. Ready? Quote, It seems to me that where you come from, North America, everybody wakes up every day expecting to live. Unquote. Wow, not only is that a subjectively surprising statement, something I did not personally expect to hear, but the truth revealed by this statement is surprising objectively in itself. How can I explain? Let's start by going back to something that Mirabel said. Professor Mirabel observed that the existence of nature itself is objectively a surprise. Here, Prechtel goes even farther, observing that the existence of life itself, including human life, your life and my life, today, every day, is a surprise. Objectively, the fact that I live through this day, any day, constitutes a surprise in itself. I would continue to stumble over my own words, but Stephen Jenkinson, an author who I've referred to on and off over the course of this first season of podcast, expressed this idea much better than I possibly can. Quote, How might people in some other village or town outside the dominant North American culture we live in 
rise up each morning. What does being alive mean to them? It isn't likely that they wake up every day expecting to die. They likely want to live at least as much as we do, and they would want this for each other too. Experience has taught them not that life is cruel, random, arbitrary, unjust. Experience has taught them that life is unlikely, everything considered. Waking up each day and having your children do so is not written in the stars, not an entitlement. It is not even the fair consequence of being careful and living right, unquote. Please, let me repeat that part of Jenkinson which gets to the essence of this surprise. Quote, Life is unlikely, everything considered. Waking up each day is not written in the stars, not an entitlement. Unquote. Our existence here and now, Prechtel understood, is in itself objectively surprising. And it is this surprise, the unlikeliness of life itself, that makes the existence of our own life, here and now, today, a thing of beauty. One more time, here is Jenkinson. Please, listen closely. Quote, Waking up each day is a gift. It is a gift that is not reward for playing by the rules. It is a gift from the gods giving each living person the capacity not just to go on, but to go on as if he or she has been gifted, to go on in gratitude and wonder that all the things of the world that keep them alive have continued while they slept. Wonder, awe, and a feeling of being on the receiving end for now of something mysteriously good. End quote. Yes, this surprising truth of life leads to beauty that must, in some mysterious way, be good. I don't know about you, but this is a paradigm, a paradigm of truth, of beauty, and of goodness within which I can willingly submit the whole of my being. My hope is that you can too. There is one last question for us to consider before moving on to what Mr. B finds most beautiful. At this point, I think we understand well enough that our senses draw us toward what is beautiful, that place where order and surprise surprisingly coexist. But for what? For what purpose? Why does beauty exist? Here's another way of putting this question. What purpose does beauty serve in our lives and in the life of society? The short answer to this big why question is this. Beauty serves as the primary agent of change, of growth and transformation in our own lives. This understanding of beauty's motivational force is one I'd like to explore with the help of John O'Donohue, a philosopher, poet, and theologian who examined the power of beauty using the example of the human face. Beauty functions, first of all, as the primary motivating force in our lives. This is a strong statement, I know. Listen, I said that beauty is the 
primary motivational force in our lives. Not a motivating force, but the primary motivating force, drawing us to develop and grow into the fullness of our capacities. There is a capacity within us, a quality that exists beyond the ability of the mind to fully comprehend, something that draws us toward what is beautiful. This something, this quality, begins to express itself almost from the moment of birth. Here's O'Donohue, quote, Even amidst chaos and disorder, something in the human mind continues still to seek beauty. From our very first moments in the world, we seem to be on a quest for beauty. The first thing the new infant sees is the human face. That sighting affects us deeply, for instinctively we seek shelter, confirmation, and belonging in the face of the mother. We cannot remember that time, but most of us spent endless hours of our early time simply gazing up into the face of the mother. No other subsequent image in the world will ever rival the significance of the face. The lives of those we know need and love all dwell behind faces. We are inevitably drawn to the beauty of the human face, for it is there that we had our first inkling of beauty." Unquote. Can you remember a time when you were not drawn toward beauty? Or a time when you could not identify what is beautiful? A time when you were unable to tell the difference between beauty and everything else? I cannot. And it is this being drawn into, this natural attraction to what is beautiful, that drives our feelings and thoughts forward. Later on, Mr. B will share with listeners what he considers to be most beautiful. But for now, it's enough that we understand this much. It is beauty which motivates us, which drives us forward. Beauty, simply put, constitutes a powerful force in our lives. Even more, the fact that what is inherent within beauty has the power to motivate, to change and transform our lives, only serves to raise questions. In fact, many questions. Like our next question, the question of from. If beauty generates change, our next question must become change from what? What does the from picture of this transformation look like? This from picture, our starting point, is a world, a beautiful world, I might add, visibly in order. O'Donoghue explains the visible order of the natural world our starting point, by building on his example of the human face. Quote, We are inevitably drawn to the beauty of the face, for it is there that we had our first inkling of beauty. In its form, presence, and balance of left and right, the face offers the first intimation of the symmetry and order that lies at the heart of beauty. Without that hidden order and rhythm of pattern, there could be no beauty. Nature is full of hidden geometry and harmony, 
as in the human mind, and the creations of the mind that awaken or recreate the sense of pattern and order tend to awaken or unveil beauty. Symmetry satisfies us and coheres with our need for meaning and shelter in the world. Indeed, the notion of symmetry is central to the beauty of mathematics and science. It seems that physicists, in choosing between different theories, often feel that the more symmetrical one, generally, is the more beautiful and the truer." Unquote. There is one sentence here in particular that I find to be important in our effort to better understand the from picture, our starting point, what beauty begins. Quote, symmetry satisfies us and coheres with our need for meaning and shelter in the world. Unquote. It is difficult, if not altogether impossible, to proceed forward in life unless and until one feels firmly grounded, secure in the sense of his or her own personal identity. And it is the symmetrical order of beauty, perhaps more than any other factor, that can provide us with this necessary foundation for a secure identity. It is far too easy, especially today, to view the world as a place, an insecure place, of chaos, randomness, and disorder, even anarchy. Yet despite this appearance, the presence of beauty helps to reassure us that there is also an order in this visible world, an order intelligible enough for the human mind to comprehend. This sense of order present in beauty, a beauty visible to an infant who looks upon the face of his mother, an order of balance, rhythm, pattern, and symmetry, allows us to place our two feet securely on the ground and stand up straight, feeling safe enough to venture out from home and take the chances necessary for personal growth and development to happen. If beauty can provide us with the safety and security of an ordered existence, then where exactly does beauty lead us? Here it's time to explore the to picture. We've already explored the from picture. Now let's move on to the to picture. The appearance of beauty carries with it the potential to lead our lives forward, but toward what? I like how Hodaniu continued with the concrete example of the human face in order to take us on the journey that begins with our sense perceptions of visible beauty. Quote, Science tells us that the more symmetrical a face is, the more beautiful it is. Though order is necessary for beauty, the interesting thing is that a face that is not overburdened by structural perfection can still be very beautiful. More often than not, it is the inner beauty of heart and mind that illuminates the face. A smile can completely transform a face. Ultimately, it is the soul that makes the face beautiful. Each face is its own landscape and is quietly vibrant with the invisible textures of memory, story, dream, need, want, and gift that make up the beauty of the individual life. 
This is also the grace that love brings into one's life. As the soul can render the face luminous, so too can love turn up the hidden light within a person's life. Love changes the way we see ourselves and others. There is something in the nature of beauty that goes beyond personality, good looks, image, and fashion. When we affirm another's beauty, we affirm something that cannot be owned or drawn into the grid of small-mindedness or emotional need. There is profound nobility in beauty that can elevate a life, bring it into harmony with the artistry of its eternal source and destination. Unquote. In order to gain a more solid foothold on the purpose of beauty, I need to break down O'Donoghue's final sentence of this quote. There is profound nobility in beauty that can elevate a life, bring it into harmony with the artistry of its eternal source and destination, unquote. Let's start with the first clause of this sentence. The key word in this first clause is elevate. What O'Donoghue recognized is that beauty, quote, can elevate a life, unquote. Much of human life must necessarily be spent on practical concerns. Things like winning a spot on the varsity team, especially if you're in high school, accumulating the highest possible grade point average, being accepted into a first-tier university, obtaining summer internships that might increase opportunities for high-paid employment in a career, getting that first job after college graduation, etc., etc., etc. You know all about this, I'm sure. It's the American dream. To the extent that these become your principal concerns, you can become mired in the quicksand of what Plato called the lower world, the realm of the purely physical and material. Beauty calls us forth from this lower world, what Plato described as an underground den, and it attracts our attention upward toward higher and higher levels of reality and existence. In the second clause of his final sentence, O'Donoghue sought to address the question of where. Okay, beauty can't elevate a life, but toward where? Here again is what O'Donoghue wrote. Beauty can, quote, bring life into harmony with the artistry of its eternal source and destination, unquote. For me, the key word here is eternal. That's where. The purpose of beauty is to attract us, inspire us, carry us from a lower reality, the material world, toward the metaphysical, in the direction of the highest spiritual realities. Quote, ultimately, it is the soul that makes the face beautiful, unquote. It's the soul that illuminates the inner gift of love, overflowing from the smiling mother to her child. It is this same illumination, this same radiance, flowing outward from our innermost selves that unites in harmony, lovers, friends, family, communities, 
and potentially the entire human race. The metaphysical and spiritual quality of love, ever present in both the whole of creation and the inmost heart of each individual soul, constitutes the foundation of every progress in all the worlds of existence. It is this progress, this growth, that beauty makes possible. This transformation from the centering of human life on the material to the centering of life upon the highest of all spiritual realities. What O'Donoghue understood as, quote, the eternal source and destination, unquote, is what beauty guides us toward. Beauty exists in a word to draw us from our limited understanding of the temporal toward the infinity of eternal truth. To provide a sense of closure for this first segment on the nature and function of beauty, I'd like to share a quote from someone who was one of John O'Donoghue's closest friends, David White. Here is White doing his eloquent best to describe beauty. Quote, beauty is the harvest of presence, the evanescent moment of seeing or hearing on the outside what already lives far inside us. The eyes, the ears, or the imagination suddenly become a bridge between the here and the there, between then and now, between the inside and the outside. Beauty is the conversation between what we think is happening outside in the world and what is just about to occur far inside us." Unquote. The poetry of this prose is a thing of beauty, isn't it? Anyway, dear listener, if after this short introduction you are now confident in your understanding of beauty, well, then I'm afraid that you do not yet understand. Being eternal, beauty is infinite. As an infinity, the meanings of beauty are endless, inexhaustible. In fact, the closer one gets to the meaning of beauty, the clearer the realization becomes of how far one remains and must remain from a complete understanding. Still, beauty calls out and into the depths of my heart, and my head notwithstanding, my heart keeps on responding to the call. If you're anything like me, meaning that beauty also invites you to become open to glimpse her secrets, then by all means, please check out the podcast website, beautymrb.org. There you will find all the quotes I've referred to during this first segment of today's episode. Here's my humble advice. Read, reread, study, then yes, restudy each selection. Please, allow these quotations time to sink in, to penetrate beyond the mind into the sea of your open heart. If you do, my guess is that your heart will emerge elevated, uplifted, as more and more of the beauty ubiquitous in creation is revealed to both your inner and outer eye. Beauty calls our whole selves to live everything, every day, each moment, 
within the sacred state of reverence. This, my dear friends, is an eternal truth which I hope you will ponder in your heart. Which brings me to the next segment of this episode. I've titled this podcast, Beauty and Mr. B. Why? It is beauty that comes first. Beauty is in charge here, not Mr. B. But wait, I've titled this episode, Mr. B and Beauty. What's up with that? Is Mr. B taking over? Is he in charge and not beauty? Hey, you might be thinking, what the? Well, actually, for this one episode, just two-thirds of one episode, in fact, yes, this will be about Mr. B. I hope that's okay with you. Here's how I feel. If you've been on this ride with me from the beginning, enduring hour after hour of Mr. B, you might have wondered, wait, he's actually got even more to say? Well, actually I do. But the time has come. After all, it's about one-third into the final episode of season one for Mr. B to begin to come clean, to spill the beans. It's time for the big or maybe not so big, reveal. It's time for Mr. B to reveal what he finds to be beautiful. Quote, what does Mr. B find to be the most beautiful of all? Unquote. That's our next and last big question of Beauty and Mr. B season one. For me, this seems like a fitting way to pull together this introductory series on the meaning and value of beauty in these modern times. Where to start? Hmm. Well, the core of my listening audience knows me pretty well, so why don't I start with you? I'm going to stop talking for 10 whole seconds. Can you believe it? And here's what I'd like you to think about. The question, quote, what does Mr. B find to be most beautiful, unquote? Ready, set, go. Three, two, one, stop. Okay, whatever you guessed, my bet is that you're at least partially right. Meaning that whatever your answer, whatever that might be, is probably something I do find beautiful. But still, the question involved what I find most beautiful. Emphasis on most. Ready for my answer? Drum roll, please. That was pretty bad, I know. What Mr. B finds most beautiful is truth. And here's the truth, to the best of my knowledge. I am most drawn toward the infinite beauty present within the very highest truths. Those particular truths that elevate my consciousness, permit my own growth as an individual, and allow me to contribute to the progress of society. Please understand, I'm not attracted to just anything that is true. Truths are ever-present and most have no attraction whatever for me. In fact, 
I withdraw from the ugliness of so much that is true today. For example, I am repulsed by the truth that the police killed George Floyd. I withdraw from the ugliness of so much that's tweeted by Donald J. Trump. Tweets that expose a president who almost every day tries to avoid, deny, or manipulate the truth. I am repulsed by the corruption of established economic, social, and political institutional systems around the world. Systems which only seem to perpetuate the division and conflict that necessarily follows from the unbridled pursuit of material self-interest. I could go on and on, and I suspect that you could too. The point is this. In speaking about truth, we need to be more specific. What truths exactly qualify as beautiful? John O'Donohue's description of beauty provides us with a starting point. Remember, beauty, O'Donohue acknowledged, quote, can elevate a life, unquote. Whatever is of beauty has the ability to raise us upward. In the case of truth, to elevate our level of understandings and our capacity to act in ways that bring the world together. And truths that elevate understanding, those truths that qualify as beautiful, vary from person to person and can evolve over time. For a toddler, knowing the words cat and dog may be enough to elevate understanding. There is beauty in this naming. Beauty can also exist in a teenager's recognition that most of the countless hours she spends on homework requires little or no independent thinking. This recognition may elevate that student's understanding of the purpose underlying contemporary educational systems. These systems exist primarily to teach blind and unquestioned obedience to authority. Having said this much, it now becomes important for me to distinguish knowledge that elevates from information that serves only to confirm and validate. Do you know that person who refuses to watch Fox News to be exposed to a perspective different from the one he or she already holds? Do you know someone who just defriended that person on Facebook? You know, the one who posted another quotation from the New Testament. I know people, lots of people actually, who define a friend as someone who always agrees, no matter what. More information that merely validates, only confirms, fails to elevate. It just freezes us in place, keeping us where we are, stopping all progress. There's no beauty in that. Beauty challenges existing understandings. Beauty adds new ways of seeing and knowing what is real. The most beautiful truths draw us into whole new paradigms of knowing. A whole new paradigm of knowing. Hmm. To properly examine the beauty of truth, I think we need to become even more concrete. I think we'll need to consider me. That is, exactly what truths attract Mr. B. 
What category of truth serves to elevate my own consciousness to higher levels of understanding? There is no single word or phrase I know of that defines this category. So I've made up a word to describe this most beautiful truth. Quote, translogical, unquote. Logic is the root of the word, and clearly there is an element of beauty in logic. What makes sense is, quote, in order, unquote, and implies that there is an order in this world. And more than order, this most beautiful truth is also surprising. It's translogical. Surprise! The prefix trans is Latin for, among other things, beyond, through, changing thoroughly, and transcend. A truth that qualifies as translogical has somehow mysteriously moved through logic is true beyond logic. It's truth that transcends our limited ability to reason. Truth that raises us upward, that changes everything. Translogical truths never cease to draw me in. I'm not sure whether you could think of any specific examples of translogic on your own, so I thought it might be a good idea for me to share a few of my own examples. Let's start with power. Several years ago, I ran across an essay by the Czech playwright Václav Havel with this title, quote, The Power of the Powerless. Wait a minute. Everyone knows that the powerful hold power, and the powerless, by definition, do not hold power. So how could those without power hold power? This idea attracted me, and I've read this essay so far three separate times. Each reading has challenged me to think of power in new ways, ways that have helped me to deepen my own understanding of the nature and dynamics of power. Here's another example of a translogical truth. Recently, I've started reading about growth and attainment to the height of humility. What? Attaining to the exalted height of humility? I was both intrigued by and drawn toward this statement. Before, I always thought of humility as a lowering of oneself, even as a weakness. But now, this statement seemed to suggest that humility can be understood as the raising of oneself as an expression of strength. How is this possible? Which of these statements is true? Or can both statements be true at the same time? This statement qualifies as translogical in the sense that through my continued study, I can raise my understanding of what it actually means to be humble. My third example concerns the source of knowledge how we, as human beings, know what is true. Like you, I was always taught that the source of knowledge is the human mind. It is through the mind that I receive knowledge, store knowledge, and recall knowledge. But it has also been suggested that the true source of knowledge is the heart. To really know something, anything, is to 
quote, know in your heart, unquote. To think deeply about something, anything, is to, quote, ponder in your heart, unquote. I've even read that to see reality, I mean, really see the depth and breadth of what is true, one must learn to, quote, see with the eye of the heart, unquote. The heart has an eye? Come on, Mr. B. That's just going too far. But that's the whole point. The idea that the ultimate source of knowledge lies embedded within the heart seems illogical. I've chosen to call this idea translogical. And it is this idea about the heart as our ultimate source of knowledge that I'd like to work with for the rest of this episode. At this point, you might be asking yourself, why? Why would Mr. B feel the need to develop this example, any example? Why can't this final episode and this first season of Beauty and Mr. B just stop here? Well, the answer for me is clear. I want my listeners, yes, that's you, to understand the meaning and importance of beauty. Remember, beauty serves a purpose to elevate a life. In my life, the pursuit of the translogical has, perhaps more than any other single factor, been responsible for my own personal growth. Indeed, I believe that it is this pursuit of beauty in what does not seem to make sense that has allowed me to contribute positively in the lives of others and in my own small ways to the life of society as a whole. And that is what I want from my listeners. I want you to keep on growing as an individual and I want for you to become an active agent, a protagonist, if you will, in the life of society, a person capable and eager, even determined, to help build from the ground up in your homes, neighborhoods, and communities a world of material prosperity, of spiritual unity, and universal peace. See, I still have lots to share, so please stay tuned in. Before signing off today, I would just like to say one more thing. How great it is to be on the air again. Thank you for listening, and until next time, I wish for each and every one of you peace.